Blog Talk Radio. Should be coming up. I hit it ten seconds before she said anything, so we'll see. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. Don't worry about it. Okay. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Peach State Pandemonium for Thursday, July 7th. 2016, this is Michael Norris. Welcome to Peach State Pandemonium, a production brought to you by the GWH Radio Network, where we take you down memory lane for a look at professional wrestling the way it used to be, with conversations from those who paved the way. And now, the GWH Radio Network presents Peach State Pandemonium. You know, there's no... Wow. Rhyme or you know, we've only been this. doing it six years, so... You know, yeah, I, it's, the, it's never the same number of seconds each time. Never. <laughs> well, we've we got our own lottery to... going as to how many seconds it's going to take, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Let me get Jerry uh, on the line here. Hi, I'm, right. I'm uh, punching him up here. Maybe it won't take as long. Yeah, there's Jerry. Hey, Jerry. <laughs> this thing got started. Anyway, this is Michael <laughs> Norris. Oh, Along with Jerry Oates, Bobby Simmons, and Jay West. Uh, what's going on, guys? I voted me an astronaut suit. An astronaut suit? Yeah, air conditioning. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I bet you need one down there. Oh, you got no idea. You, you got no idea. No idea. That's all How I did the fourth go there. down there? You wouldn't believe that either. They, they Would you believe? Help it. They thought it was going to help by having the fireworks the same night as Savannah. They always do them on the third, so they switched it to the fourth. But it it was a mess. It was a mess. I didn't I didn't I didn't work late. I got there the next morning. Those guys looked like they'd been swimming in the ocean all night. They were soaking wet. <laughs> Jeez, chasing, chasing people. It was unbelievable. <laughs> You know, you know, if you took alcohol out of this equation, it'd be a nice thing. What? You can say that about a lot of stuff, though. Yeah, just the only problem with alcohol well, is how you feel the next you, day. You have to take human beings out of it too, because human beings can be yeah. stupid sometimes. <laughs> you pour Extremely. that stuff in them, and you you you, you got no idea. Not to oh, get really around it like that, you got no idea. It, 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 it. But anyhow, well, if my so did you have anybody little... blow themselves up with uh, <laughs> trying to run their own fireworks show? That usually happens at least once once a month no, of July no, somewhere uh, in the world. I did, I did, yeah, I didn't hear of anything down there. I'm I'm, I'm surprised, but yeah, I, you know. <laughs> I noticed a lot of little storefront fireworks stores open for uh, you know a week or two before. The uh, July Fourth. Now that the Georgia law allows that. Yeah. Hmm. Well, if I sound a little deeper tonight in my in my voice, it's not I'm not not back in my teens going through puberty. It's just my uh, uh, I've been suffering with a sinus infection here for about a week. I've been to the doctor and I'm being treated, but uh, it's uh, I, I feel like I've gone a few rounds. Well, you sound all right. You sound all oh, right. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Jerry. That's what it, what's, that's what old announcers always like to hear. 
You sound okay. Well, <laughs> you don't sound. If you're looking for a second that's... opinion. You have a great face for radio too. So oh, that's uh, thank you. you know, uh, I just thought I'd. The, the other thing is, oh, you sound okay. You sound like you always do. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> that's listen. Uh, as, as 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 a minister that has to deal with funeral homes, I always like to be at a funeral home when somebody makes the statement, "My, don't they look natural?" <laughs> God, I hope makes, not. That makes you wonder how they look before. <laughs> or, or that's the best I've seen them look in a long time. You know, so. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he looked so good I didn't even recognize him. Yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, maybe you're in the wrong room, so uh, that that's happened. Uh, Listen, I checked the I, Internet I, I, this a few. Ain't got, this ain't got Go nothing to do with nothing, but i got to tell you this since you said that. <clears throat> and since my wife is no longer here to jump on me for telling it, we had not been married too awful long, and, and Debbie had a, a grandmother pass away. Uh, it was actually a great-grandmother that I had never met. I wouldn't have known the woman if I'd passed her on the street. So the last thing Debbie says before we get out of the car to go into the funeral home is, please don't embarrass me. This side of the family is a little uppity. And I went, what? Me? Embarrass you? Why, why would you even say that? So we go in the funeral home, and my mother-in-law is coming out of the room where the body is, and she is crying, talking, saying, that's not my grandmother. And... My father-in-law's got his arm around her, and he's going to Carolyn. They can't make her look just exactly like she's supposed to look. Cut to the chase, long story short. The guy that did the embalming switched bodies. Oh, my. Debbie's grandmother was 90-something years old, her great-grandmother. She she probably would have weighed 90 pounds soaking wet. The other lady that he got her confused with went about 195. (laughs) <laughs> and and they had to cut the ladies' rings and all kind of stuff to make everything fit. He had the clothes on on you know he he just got the bodies mixed up. But but the so was he thing putting the, whole, the the wrong clothes on the body? Oh yeah yeah he had to cut them to make them fit on the other woman. Oh, I mean man. it was you know that should have been a clue. But anyway, long, <laughs> the funny part of the whole story is is that Debbie's great grandmother's daughter, which I guess is Debbie's aunt or something. <clears throat> she's threatening to sue the funeral home. And the funeral director looked her dead in, the mind, dead in the eye and said, I want you to sue me. Because he said, I want the pleasure of you explaining to a jury how you sat in the room with the body for four hours and didn't know it wasn't your mother. Very <laughs> so, good. You know, I need to write a book, but anyway. Yeah, that's, that's true. I my favorite. My favorite funeral story that Bobby's told, and I can't remember if this was a, a family member or what it was, about the the, the people tripping over on the route coming out of the church. Oh, that was uh, down in Louisiana. The the uh, uh, you know they back in those Cajun parts down there where Debbie's family's from back in there. They uh, this guy woke up one morning and he couldn't get his wife to, and he called the local voodoo doctor, whoever it was. And they, you know, well, she's dead, you know. So they they put her in a coffin, and they, they had a funeral. They got her at the church, and they're having a funeral. And, and uh, uh, I mean, it's one of those country funerals where everybody's crying, squalling, you know, just bad thing. So when they get ready to go to the cemetery, which is next door to the church, they're walking across the churchyard, and one of the pallbearers tripped on a tree, tree limb. And he dropped the casket, and when he did, the poor woman inside wasn't really dead. She was in some kind of coma or something, and she just, I mean, she just set up. 
So they wind up going back home later that day after everybody calms down, and she lived another two or three years, and then then she died. She did die. She died. So same funeral, same everything. You know, same church, same preacher, same everything. So when the services, when the last day ministers, the the husband jumps up and runs out of the church. And all these people are squalid going, you know, the poor guy, he couldn't stand it. He couldn't go through this. He's been through this twice. It's awful. So when they start out of the church to go to the cemetery, the guy's standing outside by that tree. He said, I want to get out of here first to make sure y'all saw that root right there and y'all stepped over it. <laughs> well, to make sure there's no problems this time. <laughs> you know, I'm sure, speaking of books, I'm sure there's one that could be written on the number of folks that uh, between the coroner's office and things like, you know, oh. all the way of people that were presumed dead that turned out not to be. Listen, if it can happen, it can happen to me. But anyway, well, yeah, that was just one. some of the stories Bobby's told me. Him and this had nothing. He wasn't involved in this at all. He just happened to be an innocent bystander witnessing a fist fight over a corpse at the airport. Oh, that's the darnest thing y'all ever seen. I went to the airport one morning to the to Delta Air Freight to pick up. Uh, we did. We subcontracted for a national delivery company, and I had went to the airport to pick up two bags of pure ginger uh, to deliver them to the Keebler, Keebler Cookie Company uh, to so they could make ginger snaps. So I'm standing on the dock waiting on them to bring this stuff out, and this hearse comes up and backs into the parking space next to my little pickup truck, and a Cadillac turned in right in front of it so that they're like nose to nose. Well, the, the funeral director gets out, and he goes into Delta Air Freight to make arrangements. He's shipping this body somewhere. These two large women get out of the, the uh, Cadillac and are standing between the cars, and they're just holding on to each other, and they're squalling. I mean, they're just boohooing. And I'm standing on the dock, and I'm looking, and I'm, you know, I'm trying not to stare at them. I mean, I feel sorry for them. Somebody they love has died, so I'm kind of looking the other way. Well, coming down the road from the opposite direction was was a, a an Oldsmobile Cutlass, and 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 it just comes out and it parks and it didn't pull in the space it parked on the other side of the parking lot. These two much younger women get out of that car and start walking toward this hearse, and when these two large women seen the two smaller women, one of the larger women hollered "bitch" just as loud as she could <laughs> holler, and they charged like bulls at each other. And that was the darndest fist fight you have ever seen in your life break out wow. right there in the parking lot. Clothes, clothes, hair. I mean, just it was, I was standing there watching people running out. And, you know, they called the city of Atlanta police. Now, all four of these women, the two large women, the two young women, they were they were black ladies. They yes. sent the whitest, shortest policeman <laughs> the city of Atlanta had. And he got there between the four of them when I drove off trying to break them up. And the guy at Delta told me it seems that the two large women, one of them was his wife and sister, and the two shorter or the younger women, one of them was his girlfriend and her sister, uh-huh. and they were upset that they wasn't invited to the going-away festivities. Uh-huh. And, uh, but that's, oh, yeah. that's that Waiting for the reading of the will also, too, I'm sure. You cannot beat live <laughs> entertainment, I promise you. No. Uh, one item I got from uh, the uh, Wrestling News, and I checked the – uh, website a minute ago to make sure the gentleman was still with us. But uh, if any of our listeners know the name, name Bill Cardeal, uh who was the Pittsburgh wrestling announcer in the 60s and uh, did Billy, many other yeah. things. 
did many other things as a basic uh, announcer, much similar to Freddie Miller and, and at his career. Uh, Bill's 87. Uh, unfortunately, he's uh, suffering from liver cancer. And uh, so we wish the best to him and his family. I've seen some pictures online. He's uh, given the old thumbs up. And uh, his sister, his daughter's there with him reading some uh, 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 cards. But you can go on uh, Bill Cardeal's uh, website. You can you can look on the Internet, and it'll tell you where to go to see that. But uh, one of the things was, uh, if you didn't know that, the first time I saw him was hosting roller derby back in the 60s from uh, Pittsburgh, but he also did the WWWF syndicated show from Allentown, and he's also well known as Chili Billy, uh, who was the yep. uh, the uh, uh, horror movie show uh, host in uh, in Pittsburgh, and there's also a website with uh, all the stuff he did as that, but um, he's a he guy was that also, he was also, yes, go ahead, go. because you may be getting to what I was going to say, he was involved go, go right in ahead. the the making of the original Night of the Living Dead. Yes, he was. And, yes, he played a newscaster in that movie. And uh, at any rate, uh, he's, uh, you know, still hanging in there, and uh, we wish the best to his family. And uh, that's just the uh, latest on uh, one of the uh, pro wrestling announcers who's uh, from the from the mid-'60s, Bill Cardeal. Yeah, that, that Pittsburgh area was a... It was an odd little yep. nook there. Um, yep. It passed through ownership and passed passed through different hands at, at different times. I think uh, at one point uh, Pedro Martinez had it, and it was part of the Buffalo Air Territory. And then uh, San Martino bought it sometime in the early '60s and had it for several years, and it was. It was a separate promotion, but it was also it recognized and used a lot of the talent from uh, from Vince's uh, from right. the New York office. Right. And then Bruno sold out to Newton Tatry, who most people know as Guido Mongol, and he had it for a couple of years, and it was back kind of tied in with the uh, NWF with Johnny Powers and Pedro Martinez, and then it just kind of fell away. And. Uh, but uh, a lot of different, a lot of good talent gone through that there, and uh, a lot of guys uh, got their starts there. Actually, I think right. that was one of the first territories that uh, George Animal Steel worked under that name. Now he had been the student in uh, Detroit. Of course, he had a full-time job. He was a teacher and a a coach uh, in a high school there in Detroit, and he only worked. He only wrestled in the summertime. Uh, but he he started out without the mask in uh, in Pittsburgh, and uh, but they had a lot of guys pass through there. Uh, the Crusher worked there at one time. Uh, uh, Bill Miller was big there. Uh, uh, besides, you know Bruno, and then they had their hometown, you know guys like Frank Holtz, who was the uh, a, a policeman, and uh, but he wrestled uh, part time. He was known as the Fighting Cop. Uh, Johnny DeFazio was probably the second biggest name of that Pittsburgh uh, territory, just behind Bruno, and uh, or maybe number three. I think number two was probably Tony Marino back during right. his Batman days. Yeah, I've got some pictures of him as Batman of all things. Uh, I think that they was did a Saturday afternoon live TV show. Yeah, 
But uh, yeah, I know I've I, told this, or I think I have about Bill Eady when he was when he was Newton Tatry's partner as one of the Mongols. The first thing he ever worked was 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 TV in Pittsburgh. It was a two out of three fall match, and he said they'd go to the they'd go to the dressing room between falls, where they would put an interview in or whatever. And he said the first fall of the first match he was ever in on that TV, some guy on the front row had a heart attack and died. <laughs> so they went to the dressing room and said, when, said, you know, they had to stop the, the whatever, the guy, you know, they had to haul the guy out. And when the, he came back out for the second fall, the, the seat was empty on the front row, but the guy's family was still there. <laughs> and said, and said, you know, they questioned it and said, you know, the, they, the family said, hey, you know, ain't nothing we can do about him. We want to see who wins the match. <laughs> oh, man. Right, you'll still be dead there. in an hour. <laughs> I've spent a lot of time the last couple of days just watching some old stuff. I'm I'm currently reading Bob Backlund's book, and it had it gotten me interested into looking up some of his matches from when he first started up there in New York. And I've been watching a lot of stuff on on YouTube and different things, and and I have have I just. Because I know how the matches are going to go, and I can, you know, I know when it's about the end and what the finish is going to be, and all that. And, and I, I let my mind wander, and I started looking at, at people's gear. Where did you guys, Bobby and, and Jerry, where did you guys get your boots from? I got mine later on from Houston. First ones I got, I, I got from. Uh... I got from uh, from Carl K and H. I had a, you know, of course, referee. I had a black pair and a white pair, but I would always take them to a shoe shop. Uh, out in Hateful, the guy out there, uh, he would he would put bottoms on them for me. I could not like work K and H boots was like working on a pair of ice skates on ice. I could not work in them. A lot of guys did. I couldn't work. I, I worked in a pair one time. I couldn't work in them. Oh, they were like they were, uh, yeah, but. Uh, uh, Jerry brought me a pair back from Japan. I love those. But uh, Abdullah brought me a pair back from Japan that, that I loved. I still have those. Uh, but uh, the last ones I bought, I bought from uh, from Ash in Arkansas. Yeah, that's where I got mine from. Jerry, where did those vented one, the ones that you had, where did you get those? Which ones? The ones that had the vents on the side. Oh, uh, Okay. See, I didn't realize that there was another place that made made so. Who made the the? I know uh, Dromo wore the 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 zipper front ones, and Ken Lucas had a pair Japan. of those too. Yeah, those in Japan. Oh, really? Yeah, those in Japan boots. I had I had some from Japan. I bought one pair from Ash. I didn't particularly like them. Uh, Houston boots were the best. My first pair was from Australia. I still got them. The uh, the ones from Houston were, to me were the best. What what did those boots cost you from Houston, Jerry? Back then, a hundred and a half. See, that, that's good because that guy made. I never had any, but that guy made a heck of a boot out there. That's a good price. It was an unbelievable boot. If you were working regularly, how long would the pair of boots like that last? Well, I still got. I still have. Uh, I still have two pairs. They still look brand new, but I'd rotate my boots. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's that's the whole thing was taking care of them. Right. Yeah, I took care uh-huh. of my boots. 
Most of, you know, a lot of guys would wear them and they'd throw them in their bag and they'd be sweaty and you'd mildew and, you know, yeah, they didn't care. They just, uh, you know, put a pair of socks on and go the next day. If you took care of them, they'd last you forever. But the ticket, My problem refereeing was I wore the toes out in them. The, the, because I, I was, I was, I would, I didn't just go down. I would slide a little bit and, and, and I just, I'd wear the toes out. Well, I got the guy in Houston. In Houston, he put uh, shark skin on the toes. I still got my boots. They, they look, they still look brand new. I took the pair of Abdullah them. brought me from Japan has uh, has shark skin on the toes. You cannot wear them out. No. Another thing I know, one of the matches I, I was watching, it had to have been one of Joyce Grable's very first matches from Madison Square Garden, and she always wore those that were that laced up the side and Rocky Johnson wore those too. And I don't I was sitting there watching, how in the world would you tie those things? I don't know, that'd run me crazy. Yeah. <laughs> if the the only thing well Bill Ash's or, or Noah Noah Ash's boots, they were just the soles of those are so thick. I don't know how you'd ever wear them out. It's like walking on stilts. The thing about his boots were that I didn't like were they were too they're stiff. They are very stiff, stiff. and then I didn't I didn't I I mean the the pair that that Jerry brought me from Japan and the pair that Abdullah got me over there, you can't stand them up. They just flop over. The leather is very soft on them. I still got a pair. Uh, I still got a pair. Uh, my first pair from Japan. I still have. I, I have. I've got like five pair. They still look good. Yeah, in order to save save room in my in my bag, what I always did was I would take the uh, fold down the the shank of the of the boot down on top of of the the actual shoe part of it, and then wrap the lace around it. Right, you know that way they didn't. T- and you're right; those those ash boots are hard to get. <laughs> you know, it took. I eventually I got them to where they'd fold down, but when I first got them, they were hard to to do that with. But I got them right now. I've had them. See, I bought those in nineteen nineteen seventy nine or nineteen eighty. And I've got them. If I bet, if I went and got them out of my suitcase right now and, and un, unlaced them, you know, unwrapped them from the way I've got them wrapped, the shanks of them would stand up right now. Sure, they would. Yeah, he used good material and he used good leather, but they, you know, they were just, <clears throat> it's just the way he made them. Yeah, they, and they've got the the back end of them up to go up the back of your calves are pointed. Yep. Yeah, not round at all. Yeah. But you could buy them that way. I always I like the looks of those better than the ones with the low rounded um thing. I wish I still had the catalog that I had from him, but I rem- I still remember I paid sixty five bucks for those. Hmm. That's a good product. Indy Apple Red. When I first bought my first I this would have been about nineteen seventy 70, maybe 71. First K&H catalog I ever got. Because uh, K&H was a big kayfabe thing back then, man. You had to know somebody yeah. or you couldn't exactly. figure out. They wouldn't tell you where they got their stuff. 
But the first catalog I got from them, you could they had a they you could get a white or a black boot in the what well, it was a twelve inch, which was the tall one, and they were they were twelve dollars a pair I think, and you could get the the short, which was the ten inch or the eight inch, I forget what it was. Those were the ones like uh, Wrestling Two War. Those were like uh, eight or ten dollars a pair. I mean, they were they were dirt cheap. Where in Ohio just, were they from? Where, where were they, they were from? in Columbus, uh, Columbus wasn't it? Well, no. they were at, they were actually in a little town outside of Columbus. I can't remember the name of the little town, but it was it was Not right Young outside town, of Columbus, Youngstown or something like that. I don't know what it yeah. was. Was it Marion? Marion, Ohio? Nope, 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 nope. I heard yeah, it. yeah, I think Youngstown may have been what it was. I, I don't remember what it was either. I've got one of those. I've got photos of a catalog. I don't have an I've actually catalog. got a catalog back here in one of my photo albums. I've, I found one. but uh, And their trunks were unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. Very good, <laughs> durable stuff. Did you did you guys have to did you cut yours down and have them uh, the waist re re uh, hemmed? I didn't. I didn't either. Because I know you, a lot of guys did. The waist. You could order the waist the way you wanted them. Really? Yeah. yeah. You could order them low cut, high cut. I always, I, you know, I wore mine under my referee's pants. So I always, when I ordered them, I ordered the high waistband and I ordered the heavyweight material. I didn't want them to wear out. I wore the heavyweight. They were thicker. And then, yeah, then the undertights were, I, I always wear a, a thinner undertights. Right. Mm-hmm. They didn't yeah. have a drawstring on them or nothing. No. They had no, good no. stuff. Um, well, see, I, I ordered, the first thing I ordered was, was, a, was a, a butcher and then the trunks. And then I never wore the trunks. I always wore the butcher. And then I ordered a uh, a second butcher. I had a, I had a red one to go with my red boots, and then I ordered a blue and white one. So I'd have red, white, and blue for my Mister Junior America gimmick. That by the time I got my stuff was the 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 run was over. With. <laughs> That's the way it is. <laughs> and I've got a uh, a red. Uh, a red satin ring jacket with silver piping on it that Jerry Stubbs gave me that he told me Olivia Walker made. And whether or not she did, I don't know. But, um, and then I had a, I had a, a blue satin, uh, baseball jacket that I used as a, as a ring jacket when I wore the, the blue and white. And I don't know what became of it. I've got, I've got all the rest of that gear, but my jacket, that jacket I don't have anymore. Marina Darling probably got it. What's that? Marina Darling probably got it. You know, one of your fans, Mike. Well, I was going to say I I I never worked Atlanta. Otherwise, I'd I'd say uh, uh, what was his name? Donnie Payne got it. But uh, (laughs) (laughs) I wonder how many jackets he ended up with. Yes, sir. He took care of, but you got them back too. Yeah, I wonder how many uh, Bobby. Did you ever did you ever make any kind of count about how many outfits he had? Oh, there's no telling. He had more outfits than the guys did. Uh, you know, think if anything, do what, Jerry? Is he is he still around? Yeah, I've seen him. I saw him maybe a year ago. Uh, I ran into him uh, uh, in a restaurant on the north end of town. I've invited him to our get-togethers, and he he just he never showed up. But he. 
Donnie, you know, this it's we paid Donnie ten dollars a week. That's what he made was ten dollars. But he just loved he loved our business, and he yep. you're right, Jerry. He guarded them jackets. You never had to worry oh. about losing one. That you know, if he happen. if he got it, he was gonna hand it to you when you started in the dressing room. He was a good kid, man. Yeah, yeah. I just, I just remember. You know, I won't say that I never saw him wear the same outfit twice, but he, he had a multitude of different outfits. You know, the stuff wasn't that expensive back then, but it was, it wasn't. I mean, you know, it wasn't cheap either by by yeah. uh, uh, that day's standards. And he, but yeah, he, and he ordered all his stuff from K and H. So he looked good. <laughs> and he had he had boots to match those outfits too. Yes. So you talk about talk about equipment and the things that you you know. Uh, the guys today could take a few lessons from from some of that K and H stuff. Of course, I mean you know you've got a lot of people that manufacture and make stuff now, but. Uh, uh, now I guess they go to their local Walmart and buy cut-off jeans because that's what most of them wear, or, or, well, or I, uh, tennis shoes and soccer pads. And I would imagine uh, with everything else that's controlled, that uh, McMahon controls everything that each one of the guy wears with their with their identity, whatever it is, you know. Well, they, they you know, they're pretty well. Those guys, uh, I agree, they do. But those guys do at least have equipment. Uh, you go to one of these independent shows. Uh, if you got ten, twelve guys on a card, they're probably not one pair of boots among the ten or twelve guys. Yeah, that's true. And I, I'm not knocking anybody because there's some successful people out there. I never refereed a match in my life. I didn't wear wrestling boots, and, re- and I don't ever see referees wear boots anymore. They wear tennis shoes. They can't no, that's afford them. No, we've we've seen we've seen one referee wear them, but he just didn't lace them up. Oh well, yeah, I take that back. I did. Yeah, I forgot that. <laughs> he had on he had on white boots and did not lace them up. He might not could afford the laces. Oh, they were there. He just didn't didn't do it. <laughs> he just didn't time. I don't see. I kept the other thing. What did you guys carry your 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 equipment in? What kind of bag did you have? I started I out helper. with a hard shell suitcase, and I wound up with a. I got somebody to bring me one of those black leather totes from Japan. I don't remember who got it for me, but that's what I used till I quit. I still got it. Did you have Jerry Halliburton? Yeah, I still got it. I I always wanted one. I couldn't afford one. I had three over the course of my doings. Did you carry the gold one, did you, Jerry? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I had a, I know a I, brown I got my Wilson. First, I got my first one from Bob Boyer, and Dickie got mad. He said, you ain't been in the business long enough to have a Halliburton. <laughs> I said, no, you never had one. <laughs> I paid $54 for it. Gee. You know those things are 600 bucks now? You sold, you stole that, sir. That's I was going to work for. here about two, three years ago, and there was there's a store... Uh, over in the uh, Virginia Highlands part of it, it's a uh, uh, consignment shop, second-hand place, whatever. 
And as I was riding by one day, I happened to look in the window, and I seen a I seen a silver Halliburton sitting in the in the in the, in the window. And I got to work, and I called I called the place. I got the name of it. And I called him, and the guy says, "Yeah, it's a." He said, uh, "We're not sure. We thought it was a camera case, but there's nothing in it, you know, to hold the camera." So I knew what he had. And I said, "How much you want for it?" He said, "A hundred and a quarter." And I called Debbie, and I told her I'd seen it, and I told her what it was, and she told me, she said, go buy it. You've always wanted one, go buy it. But, you know, the more I thought about it, the more I said, what do I need it for? So I didn't go buy it. <laughs> but, yeah, it's, I always wanted one, but I just never. Those were called, those that we carry were called overnighters. Yep. I had the same leather, brown leather Wilson bags, all I had the whole time. My entire two and a half years in the business, that's what I carried everything in. And now I don't know where it is. I've got everything in, a, in an old uh, Samsonite suitcase now, but I don't know where, I don't know where my Wilson bag went. Well, I used to see guys like uh, when Austin Idol, he would come in with his, with a, uh, like a suit bag with his robe in it. It was odd, odd way to live the way we did, but it was fun, wasn't it, guys? It was, it was fun. It was a blast. Well, let's not forget Jay. Jay had a different color laser suit for every day of the week. That's that's true. Uh, <laughs> during the during the wrestling business, though, I normally would you know wear leaving home what I would wear to work in. Uh, but when I was doing music jobs, you know, I was my own roadie uh, with the band because I carried you know, all the equipment, the PA stuff and whatnot was mine. So uh, my wife and I traveled together in our van. And, uh, you know, she had an array of stuff for for her, but I had a, you know, regular suit-type garment bag that I would carry whatever I was going to work in that night because I'd wear jeans and a T-shirt and tennis shoes to set up. But, you know, one night we'd be working a wedding, and the next night we'd be working a VFW job. And so, you know, it, uh, it, it would vary as to what type of outfit we'd be wearing for the night. And sometimes we would do jobs where we, the guys in the band uh, would, would wear shirts that were the same and that kind of stuff. So, uh, yeah, it was, uh, I couldn't wear what I was going to play in because it would, you know, I'd, I'd be dripping wet by the time we got finished setting up. What, what do you come. play, Jay? Huh? What do what I play? play? I, I play guitar and bass guitar. Uh, I started playing guitar when I was eight years old. Uh, that's when Elvis hit back in 1956. My family bought me a, first a little old uh, Sears guitar, and then I got a Gibson uh, full-bodied uh, acoustic that uh, basically I learned on and played when I was a kid, and I still have that guitar. My my wife a few years ago got it uh, refurbished for me, and uh, it's quite valuable now, a, J- a Jason Jum- uh, Gibson Jumbo. Uh, but uh, when I was in high school, I played, played a Les Paul electric and uh, then when I got out of the Army in uh, late 68, I started playing bass. I got a Fender 
<clears throat> got a fender. Did you, did you, did you learn to play yourself or took lessons? Or? I uh, I took lessons uh, uh, when I was in uh, grade school and high school. I learned how to read music and, uh, and took lessons. And then I played uh, in the high school band. I played uh, bass drum in the marching band, and I played string bass in the uh, in the or- the uh, concert band. The string bass is basically the you know the four strings are like the guitar, even though you're playing the uh, bass clef. So that's what got me to play. You know where I I learned how to play the bass guitar, and uh, so yeah, I I gave lessons to kids for a number of years, and uh, that was another thing that I did. So you know I've got a uh, I've got a I've still got my Les Paul gold top and uh, my uh, last Fender basement uh, that I haven't played professionally in about 10 years, even though my wife and I do little little things for, for you know, the old people homes and things like that while we're looking for where we're going to be. Uh, but, uh, you know, we we do that at no charge. But uh, uh, that that's the stuff I got. And, uh, yeah, I started playing when I was eight, and uh, I played until the end of 2000. Uh, you know, we, we played weekend gigs and stuff like that. I never played I never played professionally as a, you know, full-time job. But I worked did you, did you, uh, did you play by ear? Uh, did I? Yeah, in, in the band, in the band uh, that we, you know, we would do 50s and 60s rock music and uh, country stuff, and a lot of times we'd rehearse and we'd use, uh, uh, you know, I'd write out the chord charts for the guys, and uh, for, for, and uh, so at any rate we would rehearse based on that. But most guys that did that kind of work had a good enough ear that uh, once they heard a song, uh, that they, you know, they knew how to, they they knew where to go to, uh, you know, when they were playing, and uh, and and a lot of guys that I played with, uh, you know, didn't read music at all. Uh, but uh, I did, and uh, you know, if you played with, it's just like it was just like working, you know, with a guy that you would work with in the ring, and and if you worked with him a lot, you knew what you knew what he was going to do without even, you, you know, he, he didn't have to call the match so much because you knew what he was what he was expecting to do and what you were going to do, and that's the way it was when I played with a lot of musicians. Uh, I knew what they were going to do before they did it, you know, and you just you just that's just when you're playing with guys that you trust and uh, and you play with a lot, and if they're good, you 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 build that rapport with them, and uh, uh, it's uh, it, it's good. What's really bad is when you're, you you call in somebody that you've never played with before, and uh, and uh, you know they're working with a group there that night, whether it be a drummer or a bass man or a guitar player, and and uh, you know you're a little skeptical at first, and then after you feel a little more comfortable, you still don't know exactly what their style is and and uh, it can be a little uh, you know uh, you got to pay a little more attention uh, that way but i i enjoyed it I, I like i said i played all through high school i played with a rock band in high school back in the 60s and we did real well uh, and uh, probably had i not got drafted uh, i would have ended up being some worn out guitar player and uh, so, actually, being drafted back in the middle '60s was the best thing that could ever happen to me. Did you me play and Jerry and Mike can play a radio. <laughs> That's what my daddy always said. He could play radio. That's about all I can play. My well, mother. I'll tell you something, Jay. You talk about playing the bass. I played the bass from the fourth grade 
till I graduated high school in the in the in the orchestra. Did you? In my tenth in my tenth grade grade year, they pulled me out of the orchestra and stuck me in a marching band, and I never played a horn in my life. And really? the band director locked me in a practice room with a tuba. He said, you can read the music, and you know what the notes are. He said, you can come out when you can play it. And within wow. five days, I, I was playing a tuba. I, <laughs> and I now I can't guys, play anything. I saw a few guys do that. Sousaphone was uh, the tuba. The sousaphone was really, yeah, really big, tough. That's what I played. Uh, really, really tough because it was heavy, just like the bass drum was. Uh, but the problem was during the wintertime, carrying that thing and playing that uh, that mouthpiece, uh, was was really rough on those guys playing the sousaphone. Yep. Uh, Had a lot of fun. Bass. We were fortunate that ours were made out of fiberglass, so I didn't have the big heavy brass one. But, yeah, you know, by it's the funny. Time, I, can st- I can still read the music, but I can't play anything anymore. When you don't do it, you lose it. And that's, that's right. the gospel that's, truth. That's, I just, uh, and that's the problem with guitar. You know, I, we've been practicing a little bit here because we told these folks we'd do something for them in a, few, in a couple of weeks. But the problem with guitar playing is that if you don't play, you lose the calluses on your fingers. Right. And and it becomes real painful when you start trying to trying to do it again uh, without those calluses. But uh, I don't miss it because it uh, playing all the times we did. We between two thousand between 1991 and 2000, when my wife and I had our own group. We played uh, 420 jobs in that 10 years. That was with having a full-time regular day job and having her kids we were taking care of and everything else. Uh, so it was uh, it, it was really, really hard work. And, uh, uh, you know, so it it, uh, it we made money at it. it we, we didn't lose money. Uh, I wouldn't have done it if I'd have lost money, not during that time period. That was, you know, but... Uh, but we did real well. We played a contract out at Conyers at the BFW there. We played for two and a half years every Saturday night working on a three-month contract. And, uh, you know, they just keep renewing it. So uh, we, we had a good band, Westward Bound Band. And uh, uh, it's, uh, you know, I enjoyed working for the folks. It's sometimes working for the people, the promoter, as you call them, or the person that was in charge of hiring the folks, the bands. They were, you know, assholes at times, but... Uh, you know, that was just part of the gig. My best friend in high school played tuba, and uh, I loved it because uh, he he was in a marching band, and, and whenever he'd mar- they'd march in the Mardi Gras parade, of course, people tried, did their best to take all the throws that they were catching off the floats and ring them into the tuba. So we, <laughs> we racked up, I don't know how many moon pies and stuff. Of course, it made it hard for him to play. Yeah, you know, after it, the, got, uh, it got so full, but now they put screens on them to keep people from doing that. I guess. Yeah, the 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 sousaphone, the bass, uh, you know, that that was a real rough instrument. I always thought. Now I played the bass drum in the marching band, and uh, that's you know, if you watch guys playing bass drums now, uh, they've got these uh, straps and the the styrofoam things that that put the bass drum off of your body. It's about six to eight inches away from your body. And uh, so you're not having that pressure of that thing, and you've got a real big strap on the back, and, uh, you know, it's it's padded. But uh, when I played back in the 60s in high school, you had a, uh, a basic strap that put that thing right on your body. And I think part of the reason I have the back trouble now is from uh, carrying that bass drum. And uh, I did it for five years in high school. And then I didn't play that in the orchestra. I played in the uh, that, uh, concert that, band. That heavy Les Paul guitar. 
Uh, yeah, that's what. Uh, yeah, that's what threw me. Uh, that's the other thing that's thrown my my back out because uh, you know the basic the Les Paul. If you look at it, the single cut off legit Les Paul. They also made a double cut out in the '60s, but that standard Les Paul, the 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 uh, full body is uh, it's heavy on the on the back end, and uh, it's it's very very heavy. So it pulls your if you're right-handed, it pulls your body and your neck to your right side, and uh, it's uh, it's it's really really hard on the back. It's a very heavy instrument. Looks cool. It's a great-looking instrument. Plays great, uh, and uh, you know people uh, foam with the mouth wanting one that gold top Les Paul, uh, but it is uh, extremely heavy and it's not built for uh, playing four or five hours a night, which most most guys journeymen have to play. So did you did you do much country music? Uh yeah, we played uh we in working for the VFWs, we did everything from square dance music uh to you know, to polkas to we played country music uh, uh and uh you know, this was in the like I said 1991 to 2000. So we were pretty, you know, all the stuff we did wasn't contemporary, but uh Go back to the '50s and Ray Price and you name it, Merle Haggard and uh, I usually had guys working in the group that would specialize in something like that, doing Johnny Cash stuff. And my wife did anything from uh, uh, Patsy Cline on up. You know, she could she could do it all. So uh, well, we, we were very versatile. The reason I ask, getting back to the gear, did you ever want to own a nudie suit? <laughs> If I was I playing thought, now, I, I, would, I always thought one of those things would would make for great wrestling gear for the right gimmick, a cowboy gimmick you're, you're, or something. Some, I'm just, you're right. You know, Fargo, now Fargo had a nudie suit, but it was it was a totally different type of nudie suit from one that Fargo <laughs> yeah, was. it was a real it was a real nudie suit. Those uh, those type those type suits now that some of the guys wore wear are you know they're they're, they're retro. You know when they wear them now. Uh, you had guys back then like uh, uh, Porter Wagner. He was probably the most famous yeah. for wearing uh, that type of outfit. And then there were several others. Ernest Tubbs' uh, band uh, wore all those kind of outfits. And uh, so, yeah, they uh, Nudie made a lot of money. You know, he he was the guy to go to for if you were into that yeah. kind of country music. But we played fifties and sixties rock music, and that which was my era. And uh, and uh, you know. And uh, country music from anywhere from the fifties to the early nineties. Well, now that now that we've uh, we've totally worn Jay out on with his voice being <laughs> as, as sore as it is, and we've uh, worn him, I guess we need to talk a little bit about the wrestling business. <laughs> hey, okay. Well, on that one, one, one more thing, Gilberto Pepe Melendez. You were talking about Gypsy Doe last week. Yeah. And. Uh, uh, according to the wrestling news, I, I was doing a little background, and you may know other titles he held, Mike. But uh, what I got here is 11 titles that he held in his career: the West Virginia Heavyweight, NWA Western States Tag Team, NWA Central States TV, NWA Central States Tag Team, USWA Junior Heavyweight as El Grande Pistolero. Uh, NWA World Six Man that was in Tennessee, the NWA World Brass Knucks in Tennessee, and what he held, it looks like many many times, was the NWA Mid America Tag Team, uh, 
uh, NWA Southern Tag Team and uh, the NWA North American Tag Team as one of the Infernos, and uh, that was and also the NWA World Tag Team in Tennessee with Frank Martinez as the Blue Infernos. So I'm going to stop talking now. But anyway, that was what I came up with from the Wrestling Observer on all the different titles he held. Let me uh, let me throw one other thing in there while we're talking about him. And I may have mentioned this last week. I can't remember. Uh, if anybody's listening that's interested, uh, uh, his funeral bill, uh, he did not have any insurance. And his funeral bill was around $7,500. Uh, the day of his funeral, they collected $4,000. Uh, there was, uh, from the report I got, there was about 60 of the boys there, and between them and whoever else was there that donated, they came up with about 4000 I don't know the name of the funeral home. It's right outside of Columbia, Tennessee. If you look his name up, I'm sure you'll find his obituary. Um, if, if anybody's interested in donating toward it, don't donate. Don't go to any websites. Contact that funeral home, and they will tell you how to mail a check or a donation to them directly. That way you know the money's going toward his bill and not uh, uh, some of these other places want a percentage for handling it or whatever. But anyway, if you if you contact the funeral home, you can send it directly to them, and anything you can send toward that you know, would be appreciated. Do you know who is responsible for the bill, Bobby? Uh, his daughter. His daughter has a year to pay it off and shows about, Around three thousand dollars is what I understand, and that's that's just you know, uh, you know. I mean, they haven't asked for anything else. I just uh, uh, I know that's going on, and I wanted to put it out there. But uh, yeah, his daughter will is is ultimately responsible for taking care of the bill. But okay. the funeral home said that you know anybody that sent anything in, they'd tell them how to what to write on the bottom of the check, and that way it would go to the right place and the right fund. Okay, Mike, I'm that, done. You, you know, just uh, and, and it's it's. And I know Charlie's probably listening to this, but you know, something like that. Even though he was not probably probably was not a member, that's something that the Cauliflower Alley should, you know, yeah, look into at least helping towards that. Maybe not cover the and whole thing. They may thing, have. But, I don't you know, know if they did or they didn't, but it all there again. It all boils down to the membership, and. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I don't know exactly how all that works. I do know that, uh, uh, you know, that's uh, 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 yeah, it is a worthy cause, and that's that's kind of what they do. So I, I, they may have contributed, but I don't know. Yeah. All right, Smitty. There, if you're listening, there's your uh, there's your your project for the next week. Find out if they, if they did anything, and if not. Uh... See if you can't prod them into helping out in that situation, because I mean, you know, even if he was not a member and ever never even stepped foot in the dark in the door of the Cauliflower Alley, he was still one of the boys, and you know, had a very was, long uh, career. And it's, it's yes, that, one of the longest I've seen. Looking at his bio there. Yeah. So. Um, but anyway, uh, what I want to and, 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 and that kind of ties in because. Uh, Joe did a lot of gimmicks, and uh, uh, he was uh, some places he he did an Indian gimmick, and of course the Gypsy gimmick, and uh, he was uh, 
I guess I, he was Latin um, as far as his actual uh, heritage and everything, and uh, he, so he did a lot of different, uh, you know, Mexican and, and Spanish type gimmicks, and uh, that was kind of what I wanted to talk about this week is is how, especially back in the from the, say the fifties to the seventies how a lot of uh, different ethnic gimmicks, how they were presented and how they were, were done and everything. Um, I was trying to think today, out of all the literally hundreds of, of Native American wrestlers that actually, you know, that, that did the, a Native American gimmick, how many were actually Native American? And I think I came up with five or six. Uh, the Briscoes, and I really don't count them because they didn't really – you know, do an Indian gimmick. They just happen to be Native American. And uh, Wahoo, I know, was was genuine uh, Native American. Uh, Billy Two Rivers and Don Eagle were both, you know, Canadians, but they were they were uh, uh, Native, you know, uh, Indians, Canadian Indians, I guess. And uh, Supposedly Danny Little Bear was, but I, I don't know whether that's the case or not with him. Um, Do you know that, Bobby? I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't have it. I don't have it in front of me. But the, his Little Bear was not his real last name. I've got it somewhere, and I don't. I don't. Uh, what was it? Some, what was his real name? No. What was he? Um, I I don't know. That's what I'm saying. His his uh, widow has told me he was an actual Native American, but whether or not that's the case, I don't know. Like I said, Little Bear was not his last name, and I, I it's on my site, my website, uh, but I don't I don't know it off the top of my head what his last name actually was. Um, but he may may very well have been. Um, but other than the uh, the Briscoes, uh, the, who were actual Native Americans, they they were the only ones who didn't wear feathers and do war dances and tomahawk chops. So, I guess you know that that got over so well. Even though back in the in the, I guess one of the the first big name ones was was way back in the uh, the twenties, Chief Little Wolf was one of the first and uh he healed as much as he he worked babyface and he as it got closer into the the 60s and 70s most uh indian wrestlers were baby faces but in the early days most of them were heels uh, guys like chief uh sanuk or whatever how you pronounce it and uh jewel strongbow and those those guys were all heels do you think that came from the '40s westerns, where the you know the could very well the be, Indians yeah. were the bad guys? Could could very well be. And then, like I said, then it started to turn around. And then, uh, but if you, if you look at it, even uh, in a similar vein, all the you know Japanese heels, most of which were not actual Japanese, most of them were Hawaiian. Right. Um, they all looked the same. They all had crew cuts. They all had a little goatee, and they all, and they all wore those uh, those 
trunk, those tights that stop below the just below their knee. So I guess once a, once somebody got over with a with a gimmick like that, and I, Mr. Moto was probably uh, Charlie Moto was probably the earliest Japanese heel, even though there had been Japanese wrestlers going back into the the beginning of the, you know the early part of the 20th century. Um, but it was, I guess, the, the aftermath of World War II that the Japanese heel became popular. Oh yeah, and uh, <clears throat> and of course, you know, if you look at at uh, editorial cartoons or or you know even you know theatrical uh, cartoon shorts that were made during uh, the war years, they all portrayed the uh, Japanese uh, in a stereotypical way they were always buck tooth wearing you know thick glasses and a lot of that i guess comes from the mr moto movies that peter laurie you know played mr moto and they were called uh, japs yeah and that's that's where that that came from in fact charlie moto when he first came out he used to come to the ring wearing a pair of thick glasses Mm -hmm. and he would take them off um if you think about it, that's how I, that's how every heel looked that way, and every German heel was bald. Right, and, and the uh, Japanese would throw salt. Yep, they'd all throw salt. Mr. Moto was and the first also, one that I remembered from the 50s, uh, you know, seeing. Well, the salt thing is actually is a true thing. It's If you've ever seen sumo wrestling, which is the, the national sport of Japan, or used to be, I don't know if it still is or not, uh, that was an actual part of the, the opening ceremony, the ritual that they'd go through before the match began. They would throw the salt uh, in different directions, and they'd go through that whole gyration of, of what you know guys like Mr. Moto and them used to do. And I guess that's where they, they adopted it or, or adapted it from that and uh, just went from there with it. But uh, think about it, all the German heels, other than the Von Erichs, uh, every, all the rest of them had had shaved heads and you know mm-hmm. did the goose stepping and all that stuff. <laughs> so it must like have I said, I it guess. must have it must have really been rough being uh, portraying a German wrestler with uh, with the gimmick and uh, how they reacted with the crowd uh, during the fifties. I mean that that you know based on the short time it had been since World War Two, that uh, they had to really be wanting to work bad to 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 work that gimmick. I think. Yeah, I'm wondering who who I I would if I had to guess as to who did it first. I would say probably Carl von Hess um, was the earliest I can think of. I mean, he really wasn't bald either, but he wore the monocle and had the goatee and all this stuff. Of course, he was a Really, a guy from Ohio named Frank Fackerty, but uh, he he picked up uh, picked up on that, and and you know he was brave. That's all I'll say. You know, you, you had so many World War II veterans still around in the early fifties like that, and uh, to come up with that gimmick. Yes, sir. Um, if you've ever seen the movie The One and Only, that kind of breaks it down as a, you know somebody playing on on the the you know the emotions of, of veterans and stuff like that, getting that over. 
But uh... well, my my favorite, you know, I guess the two two favorite uh, Japanese quote unquote characters that I worked with over the years. I love working with Charlie Tanaka. You know, he was, you know, Charlie was Hawaiian, but he was uh, Professor Taro Tanaka. I had mm-hmm. a, I had a lot of fun with him. He was he was very easy to work with. I don't know how he was to wrestle, but as far as refereeing, he was very easy to work with in the ring. But my favorite guy that I guess I had the most fun with over the years was a little Spanish guy that wrestled as Oki Shakina. Yep. <laughs> he was uh, he was uh, <clears throat> he was always fun to be around when I when I was around around him. So. Uh, uh, all right, I, Jerry will remember this. When we did our first or second TV, when we were working for Ann in 85, Oki owned a lawnmower shop in, in Hayhira, Georgia. Hayhira. Hayhira, home of the famous Shriners Convention song. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> there actually is a Hayhira, and he owned a lawnmower shop there. And, and uh, I don't know if Ted, Jerry, whoever, somebody brought him over to the TV station, and uh, he they put him out there to do an interview. And, man, you would have thought he was a televangelist. I didn't think I was ever going to get him off the off the screen. <laughs> did, Jerry, did you work with Tora Tanaka? No, you ain't no, you ain't well. He was a bad man too. Now, it's it was so funny. He and he and Fuji were together for so many years. And uh, their personalities, I guess, were so opposite. That, uh, Charlie was so laid back and, and everything, and Fuji was always, you know, into cruel, some cruel ribs. <coughs> I about him. Fuji used to put marijuana in his... Charlie was notorious for dipping skull, just a pinch, a pinch between the cheek and gum. Fuji would put marijuana in his uh, hmm. in his uh, in his skull. I mean, there's been nights I've actually had to go in the dressing room and wake him up. He'd be sitting in a chair, and I'd have to wake him up because the bell would be ringing. How would a guy work like that? Well, you know, <clears throat> very slowly and methodically, but he always did. <laughs> I guess you figure that was the Japanese way: slow and methodical. Charlie Charlie had a big uh, Jerry probably saw this too. Charlie had a big black Labrador retriever, and he would bring him to the matches with him. And the dog was as lazy as he was. That dog would lay down right next to him in the dressing room and sleep for two and a half hours. Dog never moved. Charlie goes to the ring, come back, dog still laying there. He might have got a hold of some of Charlie's milk. He may have. (laughs) He may have. Yeah, Oki Shakina. His real name was Tony Jimenez, and uh, of course, long before he he started the Japanese gimmick, he was Pedro Zapata. Yep. Um, and worked for years. He he worked as Pedro Zapata, Viva Zapata. He worked in Mississippi in the fifties, called and, and called himself Viva Zapata. Worked under uh, Mask several times. He was. Uh, El Lobo, I think, at one point in Georgia. I'll tell you another um, thing he was. He was life scared. 
<laughs> did you know? Did you know in Georgia, if we went, because I live in Columbus, though. It? I'm just saying, the rest of them live in Atlanta. If he went to Augusta and was booked in, we always, if you were booked in Savannah on Tuesday night, you you went from Augusta to Savannah. He'd have to go back to Atlanta. Uh, uh, uh. Did you know that, Bobby? No, I didn't know that. Yeah, was well, he, he infect? Big time. <laughs> worse, worse than worse than Charlie Smith. I'm not gonna go there. <laughs> oh man, I was around him a little bit at the tail end of his career. He was working for Fuller. Um, a couple of times when I went in and did jobs on TV there in 81, Oki was there, but uh, he was a funny guy. He could work now. I don't think he could. Oh, yeah, he was, and he, he, he did those chops of his wasn't no joke either. He wasn't quite up there with Wahoo, but he was pretty close. <laughs> but um, he and he and Bill Bowman were pretty close. And uh, yeah. the first well, the last... I, Gulf Coast reunion I went to, um, he had been there the year before, I think, wasn't it, Bobby? That they, yeah, I think they... so. The last last time I saw him was at the Gulf Coast reunion. He was living in Houston, and uh, he had uh, he had lost both legs to diabetes. I have heard that. Uh, from, from the knee down, he was in a wheelchair. And uh, he rode a bus. He rode a Greyhound bus from Houston to Mobile to come to the reunion. And uh, he was in great spirits. He was his old self. He he spent a couple of days there with us. He was at the hotel sitting outside with us talking. And uh, uh, But uh, Levi Banks, he when he left the reunion, he wanted to go to Hayhira for a day or two. And Levi took him back uh, to Hayhira on the way back to Atlanta. He went out of the way to drop him off, and uh, he was going to stay there a few days and go back to Houston. But uh, that was the last time I saw him. And uh, he uh, and the next year, which was my first year there, his brother came to the reunion. Yes, he did. Because yes, I talked to his brother quite a bit. And uh, yeah. I can't remember his name, but, but he was a nice guy. Yeah, he came because because uh, Oki had went back and told him what a wonderful time he had, and uh and uh, then Oki passed away not too long after he got back to Houston, I think. And uh, yeah. the the brother came because he, he just wanted to – he kind of came to thank everybody for, you know, uh, the fact that Oki had had such a wonderful time there. But, yeah, it was – that's a sad part of our business is we, we lose – we don't really – I think sometimes we don't realize how much we really did like somebody till they're gone, and that's sad. But uh, funny guy, funny guy. We, you guys, well, I know Bobby was. You were still working in uh, in the office when Saito came to work in Georgia. Yeah, yeah. Made some, made he some, was he was a funny guy too. Made some nice trips with guy. him. Me and him and Ole made a loop through West Virginia. <laughs> Did you ever work with him, Jerry? He's the first one to knock me out. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, we're laughing. We're, we're we're laughing, Jerry. Not because we're. <laughs> I know it wasn't funny. I'm sure. No, it wasn't funny. 
it just the way you it's, it's just the way you phrased it. You know, that was the funny part. I'm just telling you the truth, that's all. Well, I have to ask, how did he knock you out? Well, say to what no joke now. No, I know that. Well, he took me and threw me between the top and the second rope. Now, he did, I, when I use that word throw, I mean throw. He didn't guide me. He threw me. <laughs> you know, he was built like a fire plug. Uh-huh. He threw me through those ropes, and I come around, I come through there, and I caught my jaw on the apron. And there was nothing there but canvas. Uh. And I don't remember hitting the floor, but I did. And I couldn't chew or eat for a month. Ooh. Was the match was over? Or did Florida? You... All right. Was the match over, or did you come to? I come around. And the rest of the night, he had me in the air, so I don't, I don't remember too much about it. <laughs> you know, yeah, I've said this before. I think for Japan. He did. 68 Olympics. Or no, 64 Olympics. Yeah. He was no joke, that joker, I'm telling you. He could see, you could be laying on the mat, flat on your stomach, holding on to the ropes, and he could still suplex you. Uh, well, that's he what I'm talking pre- about. When I come back around, I was in the air the rest of the night. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the first time I ever worked with him was uh, the night I got arrested in Selma. Um, but it was not for working with him. But we, after they decided I wasn't going to have to go to jail, we all went back out for a battle royal. And I had never worked a battle royal before, and I was terrified. And he said, just just stay in a corner, stay close to me, and I'll I'll put you out. So. I guess I was lucky. He was he was more gentle with me than he was with you, Jerry. <laughs> he put me out. <laughs> uh, was that before or after working with Hans Schmidt? It was it was doing that era. Believe me. <laughs> I'm surprised you stayed in the business. <laughs> I ran into some, some cement mixers down there in Florida. <laughs> Ooh. Ooh. You remember the old ring in, in America's Jerry that they kept at that fairgrounds down there that it was a piece of a piece of junk probably came over on the ark. Yes, sir. First time I got knocked out, I was the ring did it. I, I was when a guy would throw a guy from one turnbuckle to the other, I would peel in behind the guy as he threw him into the turnbuckle. That way, I knew I wouldn't be in the way. And uh, I don't even remember who it was, but but somebody hit the turnbuckle so hard that it pushed the rope back and unhooked. And when it unhooked, the, the of course the two other poles on either side of it still had tension. It pulled that thing right straight back across the top of their head. And the last thing I remember was it it, it aiming toward the top of my head. <laughs> and I come to in the dressing room. They t- had to tote me out. I didn't I didn't know where I was. I this stuff can happen so quick, man. Oh, listen. <laughs> You just and I don't care how careful you are. Something I've I never had it happen to me, and thank God it never happened with a ring I built. I've heard guys tell horror stories about hitting the ropes and the top rope breaking. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I never had that happen. Thank God. No, oh. I mean it's just you know you imagine how fast you're moving because most guys 
hit the ropes pretty hard. Uh, I've often wondered, would it be worse for the top one to break or the middle one to break? I know Dickie was promoting the town over in Alabama. It's after everything was over. Everything was so he wanted us to come over and work. So I, I, you just have to know him. He advertised. Why he advertised this? I, I hadn't figured this out. It was called the World's Strongest Ring. So we go over there and we take Thomas with us. Thomas got slammed in the in the. That ring folded up like an accordion. Where <laughs> 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 <swear> it did. <laughs> Why would you advertise the world's strongest ring? You have to know Thomas Ivy to really appreciate that story. I can just yeah. hear him. <laughs> Somebody slammed him, and all four posts come toward the center. The, it went to the floor, the, the, you know, the... The ring part that you walked on, it was on the floor, and it was just a hell of a mess. Oh, jeez. <laughs> well, something like that happened with you and uh, Larry Hamilton, didn't it, Bobby? Well, uh, the, the 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 welding broke on the pole, and the ring just sat down in, in the corner. And then, of course, me and Charlie Cook slipped and fell and slid down on top of him, but... Uh, uh, I mean, yeah, rings break. You'd have rings break. Boards would pop up, or you'd have a board break. I mean, there was things that would happen. You know, you had no control over it. They would, they would, you know. But thank you know, most of the rings we dealt with around around Georgia, and, and uh, you know, they were all. We we tried to keep them up as best we could. So, uh, but still, something could go wrong. Yeah, I mean, you never. We had a. We took we took Andre the Giant to Florence, Alabama. Ronnie West was promoting it, some kind of field house over there, and he had about a five thousand dollar advance. First time Andre had ever been there. Got over there, would took the ring over. Went with somebody. I would I would just went over to help. I don't remember. I think I was referee, and I, I went over there, and the ring when they were setting the ring up, the 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 cup the cup on the corner post, uh, the side rail set down into it. The well broke. It come off the come off the post. Now you got a you got a you got a five thousand dollar house and, and you're advanced and you're you know you got the giant there and you got a ring broke. Man, I looked for a welder everywhere in that town I could think of. Couldn't find one. Couldn't nobody on call. Couldn't find anybody. And uh, we wound up. I wound up chaining it up. I forget how I did it, but I but I put a chain on it and did something anyway. We finally got it put together with a chain. And uh, I told him to dress room. I said, please stay out of that corner as best you can. And, of course, you know what everybody did. But fortunately that <laughs> night, the good Lord blessed us, and the chain held it. But, wow. Yeah, you, you can't, you can't, uh, you never know what's going to happen. Never know. Uh, I can, I can, uh, I may be wrong, but I can just about say that I've worked in the, the all-time worst ring that was ever created. One in, in in where was it? Fayette, Alabama. Didn't have a canvas, so they used a vinyl vinyl boat tarp. So not even one. They had they had two of them, and the seam was right. You know the the they overlap right in the center of the ring. They were white vinyl boat tarps. So you can imagine 
if you're working the second or third match and you've already had two guys rolling around on there sweating, what that was like, that was like trying to wrestle on a slip and slide. And the ring ropes, and I know a lot of a lot of places use, you know, the the steel cables, and they'd wrap them with a with a red garden, you know, red water hose or whatever. Well, this one had the green nylon or vinyl, whatever they used to make old garden hoses out of. The, the, that's what this was. It was the worst ring. Now there were some shoddy rings around. I was more worried about that ring than I was, you know, the guy. I got more beat up by that ring than I did the guy I was working with, and he wasn't, you know, he wasn't well, the easiest thing. Was, I, I, I knew I was in trouble with Hans him. No, this guy was, was no, but this guy had on, Jerry, he had on homemade, a homemade outfit. He had on a, a full body suit. It was white and green. It was white, you know, the white tights, white uh, V T-shirt, and green trunks, I thought, till I got in the center of the ring. <laughs> the referee was giving us instructions, and I'm looking at this guy, and it's all one piece. His mother had made it for him. Well, that was nice. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, Lord, let me survive this. And that guy, every time he would he would take me over with a with a hip toss and slip in that that slippery ring, and he'd follow me, and I wound up with with bruised ribs after that. And the referee in there stepped on my hand and broke my finger because he was about six hundred pounds. And I survived that and get out of there. And, and they didn't have a shower in this building, so you know I had to. Uh, you know, go out back and use a garden hose to, which was probably related to what the ring ropes were, um, and, and shower off, and then go up upstairs to the dressing room. And I'm trying to, to, you know, get dressed so I can get out of this place. And I'm hearing this whizzing sound, and I turn around and look, and the ring announcer's in there with a a Polaroid land camera, trying to catch my take a picture of me undressed. <laughs> Well, you could probably tell what kind of guy he was. Yeah. And that's when you said, I really want to do this for a living, right? Where's my next book? I just didn't want to go back to to Fayette, Alabama. And that's where the guy was. (laughs) The guy's name was was Charles. He called himself the Commoter. And I I said then, you've nailed it just about right. You know, in the time that I've I've been uh, doing this show with you guys, I think I've heard more horror stories about working in Alabama than anywhere else, really and truly. You were close. (laughs) (laughs) No, Alabama had some good, I mean, you know, Dothan was a great town. Um, Houston County Farm Center, even though it was a, a thousand degrees in that building and they had no air conditioning, the only breeze they had is if they'd open that big roll-up door at the back of the building. But the you know, and it had that old hard clay, red clay floor. Um, but it was a great building. It was it was just a great. It had a lot of tradition in it. It had been they'd been running in that building, you know, for you know twenty five thirty years, and it was just uh, you know the dressing rooms were tiny and all that. But uh, 
you know, I can't brag about Selma. That that it had nothing to do with the building, even though it wasn't the, the greatest building in the world. I just had a bad experience there. Um, and uh, Mobile, especially when they ran the, the the big building, was a great great building. Jerry, you worked in the Municipal Auditorium. Yeah. You were lucky. You never had to work in the Expo Hall. Um, and it wasn't bad. It just was a small, you know, smaller venue. Um, <clears throat> Montgomery wasn't bad. Birmingham, the Batwell Auditorium, to me was like, uh, you know, was like the the Farm Center in Dothan. There was so much history in working in that building, and that was a great building too. It Did you really work was. Batwell? You worked oh, yeah. Batwell, didn't you? Yeah, a lot. Um, you'd go in, you'd go in off of it, you know, and it looked like a small building from the street. But what what would, would fool you about that is when you went in through the front door, the arena itself was actually down. You know, it's like you had to walk down into it. It was, yeah. From, um, it was like a big uh, bowl is what it was like. Um, now, there again, the dressing rooms weren't the greatest in the world. I don't know about the babyface dressing room, but the heel dressing room was up upstairs. And uh, as, as Bobby's told that story about Rocket Monroe and Maxie York, kind of had a uh, homemade shower in there, but, you know, it wasn't bad. Um, Bobby, uh, the place he worked in Mississippi was probably worse than that. That's an old high school gym. And then there was a, the the far, the uh, the Wade Kennedy Livestock Arena over in Hattiesburg. <laughs> I'll tell you about that one. <laughs> and that's that that's exactly it was exactly as the name applies. It was an old livestock arena. Well, they had those all over the place. Uh, Quincy was a livestock arena. Ozark was a was a livestock arena. No, what no? Yeah, it was Ozark. No, it wasn't Ozark. What was the other? New Brockton. New Brockton was a New Brockton. Was a live yeah, stock I worked in Brockton as a was a was a livestock arena. And uh, but you know, yeah, Ozark, Ozark built a pretty nice civic center over there. Yeah, Ozark had a, little, a decent little civic center. It was kind of like the one down there in Valdosta. Yeah. Guys, I'm about to get out of here. I got a long. All right, Jerry. All right, Jerry. Have a good night, Jerry. Stay cool, buddy. Nice to talk to you. Always good. I enjoyed it. Good night, guys. Good night. Good night. Bye. But uh, yeah, I did this. 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 Some odd buildings. Well, we've talked. We've talked about the um, the Indians, the guy, the Native Americans, the ones that were and were not. And the Hispanic, whatever they may were and were not. Uh, did uh, when did when did you may have touched on this before, Mike? When did it become common for black wrestlers to work with uh, white guys rather than just being black wrestlers working with black wrestlers? Uh, well, just in in the Mobile Territory it was 1968 was the first time they allowed and and the one who broke the color barrier um it was actually broken a couple times um but the first one to do it was in when Lee was still running Louisiana and they brought in Ernie Ladd 
and they teamed him with uh, Danny Little Bear against the Daltons in New Orleans, if I'm not mistaken, or it might have been Baton Rouge, I'm not sure. And then the first one to uh, have an integrated match in uh, the upper part of the the uh, of the promotion was in Panama City, a match between Billy Hines and Burhead Jones. That was again in 1968. Right. All right, 67 is when the Ernie Ladd deal was, and then 68 was when the uh, the, the Billy Hines said. Um, prior to that, it was always, and and there was never anybody, there was never a black wrestler that stayed in the territory. It was always traveling. You know, they they bring right. in two guys at the same time. It was either Matt Jewell and Tom Jones or or uh, uh, Shag Thomas, and uh, it was King Toby is what he was called then. And uh, uh, Tiger Conway Sr. Um, They'd work against each other. Back, yeah, and then going back into the 50s, there was two two local guys um, that lived in Mobile. One's, one's name was uh, Sam Williams, but they billed him as Bull Williams. And the other was a guy named uh, Earl Sims, and he was called Killer Sims. And uh, they were just two local Mobile guys. And... Uh, and you know they they would bring in the the black lady wrestlers and they always they, they never you know that was always uh, you know they always had to work each other you know uh, right like Babs Wingo and uh, um, her sister Ethel Johnson they worked each other a lot um, and it was uh, Willie Mae Dugas um, who worked other places as Princess Eubangi. Um, <laughs> Which is a stupid name, but uh, she actually she dressed. She had a bone in her nose and and big earrings and and stuff like that. And I, that sounds like a, a Pfeffer gimmick, and it may very well have been. Can you but imagine? Whenever, can you imagine somebody getting hold of some of those pictures now? Oh, I've got some of her. Uh, I mean, you know, that would exploit them from the standpoint yeah. of uh, you know. Just, just unbelievable, Bobby. Do you remember when uh, what had happened in Atlanta when uh, when the color barrier was broken as far as blacks working with whites? Well, Michael came up with a poster with a card somewhere from possibly on Ballpark, and it was either really early '60s or late '50s where Bobo Brazil was wrestled somebody or was in a tag match or something. But the first time I ever saw it in Atlanta, again, it was always. Matt Jewell, who was the Georgia heavyweight champ, black heavyweight champion against somebody, and it was always the very first match on the card. Mm-hmm. And then uh, in 1967, 68, uh, the first time I ever saw it was uh, uh, the Assassins against Bobo Brazil and somebody. Uh, but that was uh, the first time that, that I'd ever actually saw it, and I can remember it created quite a stir. Did it? Uh, because it had not you know, been I done. Never I never thought much about it, you know, when I was, and it all goes back, I think, to the two years that I was in the Army between 66 and 68, because, you know, younger than that, I I never thought much about it, but by the time I got out of the Army in 68 and I started watching it again, it was not uncommon to see Bobo Brazil come to Atlanta, and and he was working with white guys, and it just, by that point, it just, it, it just seemed like, you know, they're, 
there may have been a problem as far as some people, but it, there wasn't any problem as far as it looked like them being booked. And no, they no. all and and white fans, you know, I thought took to Bobo very very well. Yes, they did. They did. They did. They were the nicer guy in the world in Bobo Brazil. Uh, but uh, some of the things that I remember about those guys when they had to work was that it wasn't uncommon for the headbutt to be their finish because the idea right. was that they had a hard head. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you think about it, I mean, if you know, nearly every uh, from from the fifties through the late seventies, every black wrestler used the headbutt, and every one of them did some sort of of, of jive dance. You know, right? I was going to say the jive talk and the strut. You know, they would do jive yeah. talk, and they would do some type of strut around the ring, when particularly when they were, you know. Winning, and I would imagine you know business was business, and guys did what they did. But I would imagine there were a few of them that, uh, you know, by as time was going on, getting into the seventies there, that uh, uh, they may wish to have wished that they were not having to do that. But uh, and and a lot of them were not articulate, and I'm you know I'm sure some of them weren't because there were a lot of white guys that weren't all that articulate. And I can think of one blonde-haired one right out, you know, right on the tip of my tongue, which I won't go into. But uh, <laughs> at any rate, they were, you know, they were expected not to be. And uh, so, you know, but then you had, you know, you had a few guys that that's just the way they were. Uh, I, I I don't imagine Rufus Jones was much more articulate than he appeared to be in his interviews. No, Rufus stuttered very bad. <laughs> and, and, and the thing, you know, as times changed, I don't ever remember Ray Candy using a headbutt. Uh, I don't ever. Charlie Cook had the best drop kick in the business. Yeah. Um, you know, just things things changed and uh, 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 times changed. But it was a, uh, you know, it was a very uh, Burhead uh, to hear Burhead Jones talk and talk about some of the trips he had to make down in the lower Alabama. Mississippi, Louisiana territories back in the '60s. How the, you know, and he said, and 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 Burhead's very quick to say that it was never the boys in the business. It was, it was just the area and the surroundings and the culture. Uh, you know, right. they would pull up to a restaurant and he couldn't go in. He had to go around to the kitchen door to be fed. Uh, right. Just you know, horrible, horrible things. And and uh, you know, times changed. I, I just I don't ever remember. And yes, there were some racists in our business. There were some vocal racists in our business, but I never remember. I don't ever remember it having anything to do with business. I don't ever remember a problem with guys working with guys. Uh, it was just getting over that initial somebody had to be first. Right. Yeah. When I went with Charlie Smith out to uh, Seattle, Washington, to Dean Silverstone's reunion, and I cannot tell you what year it was. It's been been a number of years ago. But Tony Bourne and Tiger Conway Sr. were there. And I remember sitting and listening to those two guys talk. They broke the color barrier in Houston, Texas, working against each other. And Tony talking about the threats and the death threats and the way people reacted and the things that we're doing. And uh, uh, just, he said it was just, you know, he just decided, hey, I'm going to do it. You know, I like the guy. And he said, he said they did it. Uh, the matches got over. They had a good little run there against each other, and he said, "You know, nothing ever came of it." 
I would imagine it would have been very difficult during that time for the uh, black wrestler to have been the heel. Oh. Uh, that would have just added to it. Yes, very much so. Who was uh, in Atlanta? Who was the first full-time, uh, you know, because the, they would bring black guys in to, you know, to wrestle each other is more or less like a traveling special attraction. Who was the first full-timer here in Atlanta, God, and a, what year was it? That's a good question. You know? Uh, uh, I don't really know. There were guys be- I'm sorry, there were guys before him, but Tony Atlas, uh, by the time he came along. Oh, yeah, Tom uh, Jones was way before Tony. Yeah, Tony so was Norville Austin. Tom Jones, Tony Norville was, Austin. Tony was very Tony was well accepted. the first guy ever got the big push. Yeah, yeah, he was very, very well accepted when he came in. Yeah, you know, and he get, was the first guy to got big the big push. push. Yeah, but uh, Tom, Tom Jones, Pork Chop Cash, um, uh, Tom Shaft yep. was in here for a while. Um, God, I'm trying to think. Charlie Cook. Was I'm, I'm wondering I don't why, really know who the first one was. Could very well have been Tom Jones, though. I'm, I'm wondering why Rocky Johnson didn't do any better than he did here. I mean, he was a very articulate guy, and he he was a good worker. But he he and he did, he was in and out of here a few times. But he he didn't seem to stick around Atlanta. He had a run here the first time when I first came to work for for uh for the Barnett's office, uh he probably uh got Rocky was here for maybe a year run, maybe a little less than a year. He was here he was here a good while when I first came he was over. Georgia champion at one time. Yeah, he was yes, Georgia he was. champion. He had a lot of good matches with Buddy Colt. Uh, yeah, he came they, from the Carolinas, I think. Him and Jerry Briscoe were Georgia Tag Team champions for a while. Um, yeah, just <clears throat> I wish I'd. Have, well, I wish you know I'd have had a. I wish I could have would have had been psychic back then, because I'd have been <clears throat> a lot nicer to his son. <clears throat> <laughs> and and you know Rocky was one of those guys that you know he he didn't do the strut the jive talk kind of stuff. He was no. You know, and he had a boxing background, so he did. Yes. He would do like the Muhammad Ali shuffle, and he, you know, yes. that sort of stuff. But yeah, he uh, and then Rocky was a good worker. He he uh, yeah. he had good matches. Uh, uh, he also wasn't American. I don't know if you guys realize that, but Rocky was actually from Canada. Yeah, yeah. Um. But going back to who I, I asked about who the first was, well, the first black wrestler that worked full-time in Mobile was in 1971, and it was Prince Pullins. Prince worked in here, too, some, didn't he? He would uh, come through. That was during the split, because I never worked yeah. with him, but, yes, he was here. But uh, but Prince was uh, the first, and he, he got a push right away. I mean, he his first he won a title his first night in the territory. They teamed him with Boyette. And uh, they won the uh, U.S. tag titles, but then they took him right from there and uh, put him into a main event program with with Fargo. And in fact, Fargo is the one that got him into Mobile because he had uh, Prince had been around working for Sheik and for Bruiser just as you know mid card guy and, and never really got a push. In fact, uh, Mobile was the only territory he ever got a push in. 
and uh, they turned him heel, which was there again another risky thing, turning him heel um, right. towards the end of of seventy one, and uh, he was he was still you know got over big as a heel, and they had a lot of big plans for him, but he got homesick and uh, wanted to go home, so he he. Uh, was booked in the main event on on the big Christmas card, teaming with Bobby Shane, and uh, he no-showed. Went huh. home and never came back. Wow. And went right back to working for Bruiser in Indianapolis. You know, he missed his family in Indianapolis, went right back to working for Bruiser, working, you know, preliminary matches. I think I would have worked that show before I left. Well, he had no intentions of ever coming back. So, and I, you know, I don't know how Lee paid, and you know, he may have made more money working prelims for Bruiser in Indianapolis and what he was making working for Lee Fields' main event. So, that's you know. a good point. Another guy down there did, did well, wasn't it? Uh, Armand Hussein. He did good down there. Armand Hussein. Not? Yeah, yeah. He. Uh, uh, he um, was the first first uh, black wrestler to ever hold a single title in in the Gulf Coast territory. He was a Mississippi State champion, but uh, um, first black guy to hold hold the Gulf Coast. The main title there was was uh, our good buddy uh, Sweet Daddy Watts. Another star. Of course, he couldn't do interviews, so they put Spider Galento with him as his manager, and. Sweet, yeah, sweet was, daddy Levi Banks did okay there for a short run. Yeah, he there did too. too. Yes, he uh, did. Speaking of Hussein, the reason I brought that up, I may have told y'all this, I don't know, but Rocket told me the story. He did a run in one night somewhere over in Mississippi. He ran in to uh, jump on Hussein, and he said as he was running to the ring, he realized he had not spit his tobacco out. Oh. And he said when he said when he got in the ring, Hussein he knocked Hussein down. He was flat on his back on the mat with his mouth wide open. And he said it was just one of them things that presented itself, and he took that wad of tobacco and let go of it, and it happened and just wrung Hussein's mouth. And he said Hussein rolled over and got to gagging and throwing up and spitting and sputtering, and he said people on the front row started screaming he had poisoned him. Uh. And he said so it actually worked out to be a funny rib and also got a lot of heat. So, but. Uh, <laughs> You had to yeah, know Rocket Rocket said, that tobacco. It was not a small wad. <laughs> Rocky said they were the lady on the front row was hollering, Call the FBI, he's pointing. <laughs> 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 yeah. Our mom was a was a whale of a worker too. Did he have work in here? I never met him. I think he did he work here. A, he was a tremendous worker. Um, I think I can remember. You know, he had that that accent you talked about. I think I can remember and never, seeing him. Never, do. the guy was the guy was from Houston, Texas. His name was Mike Barber. He was from Houston, Texas. But I don't care if you'd known him for twenty years. He never, ever broke kayfabe as far as that accent went. Wasn't he, he in the back seat so when well. they lost the midget in Seattle? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I think man. I can remember That's him tough. doing interviews with Gordon, uh, you know, and uh, very, probably very, doing. you know, 
You know, of course, he he invented his own background. He supposedly was was a Rhodes Scholar. For, you know, had been to school in England and and uh, was a Rhodes Scholar, but was originally from from the Republic of the Sudan, and uh, had the funniest. Uh, you know, back then this was before they all had. You know, everybody had a had a uh, tagline that was popular. You know, like they they all do now. But he used to say on his interviews in, in Mobile, he'd hold up his fist and he'd say, this is an African soup bone. He said, if I hit you with this, you'll do, if you don't fall down, he said, you'll do very many funny things standing up. <laughs> <laughs> can, can you imagine if the Internet had existed back then, you know, how these guys, their whole, you know, the, their whole background, everything they did would have been blown out of the water because it would have all yeah. been right there. But it was certainly much, you know, easy to protect then. But Armand, you know, he worked for uh, Dole Wiggins, uh, the Tri-State's promotion that, that I had my first matches with. So I was, you know, I was in the dressing room with but never, never broke kayfabe with that accent. Always kept it up. And, I, you know, that's what made him successful. Um, and it's funny, he, uh, after the, the wrestling business, he moved back to, uh, I think he was living in Dallas or Houston, but his last run in the business was in the, I guess, mid eighties. Um, he came back and worked for Fritz in Dallas, mainly as a manager, but he still wrestled every once in a while. Um, but after he got totally out of the, 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 uh, wrestling business, and I think it was there in Dallas, he stayed there in Dallas. He got involved in uh, the music business and and either had owned a blues club or had something to do with blues musicians out there. So, um, but he was a he was an interesting guy. He was an interesting guy. <laughs> of course, Ian Norvell. Uh, I loved him to death because he was one of the guys that helped me get in the business. And uh, I wish I knew how to get in touch with him now, but uh, I lost lost contact with him. And all the everything, all the information I had on him, you know, his address and his phone numbers all been changed. But he was a he was a funny guy too. I have a real funny story about him and Ole, but I can't tell it. <laughs> but well, uh, he uh, Wahoo uh, Wahoo chased him around LP Pips one night with a shotgun. Uh, it was another little funny thing. Of course, to Wahoo, that was just funny. That was a you know we're we're just playing. <laughs> well, you guys you guys know Norvell's background, right? How he got in the business? Uh, not sure. Well, he was from Memphis originally, so he grew up watching, you know, Sputnik. Right. A big wrestling fan. Well, Sputnik was uh, was in Louisiana for many years in the '60s. In fact, he uh, he was the promoter and booker of Alexandria, Virginia, when uh, or not Virginia, Alexandria, Louisiana, when uh, when Lee was running there in the mid '60s, but. Since he was also a wrestler, and it was you know a promoter and a wrestler couldn't couldn't be the same person. Everything was in his wife Midge. His wife at that point, her name was Midge Monroe. Um, 
she was the promoter of of record. Well, Norvell was going to Grambling, and so he would see, you know, he'd go to the matches and and watch Sputnik. Uh, and uh, I don't think he ever graduated from Grambling, but but he was attending Grambling at that point. And somehow or another, he talked Sputnik into uh, helping him get in the business. And Sputnik fell in love with him, basically adopted him. You know, and put the streak in his hair, and uh, they broke. They started in in uh, back in in. Uh, well, I guess they started in Louisiana, then they went to Memphis, and then went to uh, Florida together. And he was, you know, he had the streak in his hair like uh, like Sputnik did. I guess he still had that here when he came here, didn't he? The the yeah. white streak in his hair. Oh yeah, well, I can remember. I can remember the wrestling magazines uh, showing pictures of him and Sputnik together. You know, and yeah. uh, but then uh, they brought him into uh, Mobile, um, and he he wound up teaming with Rocket quite a bit there. But they they he was still you know associated with the Monroe, and. Uh, and he, Norvell was he doesn't get a lot of credit for for what he was he was the first guy I ever saw throw a drop kick and land back on his feet. He didn't land on the mat, you know, like most he landed back on his feet. And the thing that's, that's so popular now, what people call a moonsault, you know, where the guys climb up on the top rope and do a backflip off, you know, um, I guess Ed, Edward. Carpentier was the first one I ever saw do it, but he rolled, you know, he didn't land on his feet. He kind of rolled back into another somersault doing it. But Norvell could do that. He, he'd do the uh, backflip off the top rope and land on his feet. But uh, he could do a lot of things that uh, became, you know, pretty popular in more modern times, but he was the first one I ever saw do it. He could take a backdrop and land on his feet too. He and he and uh, Jerry Roberts or, or Jacques Rougeau were the, the only two I ever saw do that. Huh. Well, uh, Phil Watson, Whipper Watson Jr. He could do a lot. He could do all that stuff too. Uh, but but he never you know he never weighed uh, buck ninety buck eighty five something like right. that. Yeah, but very small guy. The the first guy I ever seen do the big stuff off the top rope like that the bag, the moon salt and all that was Doug Gilbert. Now for a guy that size to do that stuff, yeah, was pretty darn impressive. <laughs> yeah, Gilbert was a, a huge thick guy that could do all that stuff. Yeah, when they had to run, when uh, him and Dickie had to run as partners in in uh, Minnesota, they were Mister High and Mister Low. Mm-hmm. Well, immediately you would assume that Dickie was Mister High, and it was just the opposite. Dickie did all the mat stuff, and uh, Doug did all the flying. Uh, he was one of the, you know, back during the fifties, the airplane spin was one of the standard wrestling moves. But uh, Doug Gilbert was one of the last guys that I saw that would use that. Uh, Airplane spin as a as a regular type, right? You know, in many cases, going to the finish, but he was very good at that. Did John Leo Jonathan ever work in Atlanta? I never met him. 
I I I don't think so. I, you know, my, my remembrance of him were, you know, through the magazines because he was in a lot of. You would see his name a lot in the magazines, but I I don't think he ever worked here. Have you guys ever seen him? Seen video of him working? I could just see pictures of how big the guy was. I didn't I? You know, he he had matches with Andre, did he not? Yeah, yeah. And that's that's what I'm seeing, and which was was not here, but I can remember seeing that that would be promoted in some areas where he would work with Andre. Well, he was. I've I've seen. I may even still have some. I've seen video of him working, and and even late in his career in the '70s, I've got some stuff from of him in Japan. Uh, in fact, I had a match of him and Tim Woods working together in Japan, and for a guy his size. And he was not, you know, they built him as six nine or whatever. He wasn't that big. He was maybe six six, you know, something like that. But uh, still, you know, back in his day when he started in the fifties, uh, that was that was a giant. You mm-hmm. know, but he could do he could do kip ups and drop kicks and flying head scissors for somebody that big. And uh, Don Jardine gets uh, a lot of. Uh, credit for being the first one to walk the ropes, you know, walk the top rope and all but actually Don Leo Jonathan was doing all that stuff. Um back in the fifties and uh but uh he was he was amazing the agility and, and stuff he could do for a man his size. You talking about Doug Gilbert, what made me think about him. Bill Dromo um, and him were friends and Bill told me that uh Don Leo was a uh, and I'm not sure what the proper wording of or what the proper term is, but he was one of those people that could dive deep with no scuba tank. He could go, you know, I don't know how far deep, how deep, but he said he was one of those people that could go just incredibly deep into the ocean without a. Well, he, had, he without, obviously had big big lungs, you know. Evidently, uh, yeah. Being, and well, that's what he, he did. That. Uh, as he started had his own uh, diving company and was doing all that type of stuff while he was still in the business, I think that's what he did uh, after he got out of the business. He was was uh, you know did all that that type of I don't know if it was underwater welding or what it was, but he was a, a deep sea diver and, and all that stuff. But uh, but anyway. Guys, we're just you know, about out of time. We've got about ten minutes left. Anything you guys want to plug? My ears—they uh, hurt. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, Jay no. will be Jay will be appearing with the uh, National Guard uh, this weekend. <laughs> yeah, for a short period of time, if I can, you know. But uh, that's that's about it. I'm uh, I be spending the rest of the time. With my nurse, my wife taking care of me, she she does a good job. I I don't know why she's stayed with me as long as she has, but uh, it's not. Uh, I'm not aging. We were going to talk to you about that, but we didn't. We didn't get around to it. I'm not aging all that gracefully, as though you two guys know all that well. I am. Uh, I'm going over tomorrow and check my mom out of the nursing home and take her to lunch, which should be an interesting day. But uh, she, uh, mom can't walk anymore. I ha- I'm going to have to 
kind of physically put her into the car. So that should be should be an interesting day. So, but I'm looking forward to it. She, she I'm sure you are. I hope things go really well yeah. for you, Bobby. They'll be good. We'll be good. I'll be sure and tell her I said hello. I'll do it. Anybody that can uh, that that had you growing up and didn't kill you, and then I, I mean, heard she's that a, she's a saint. She's a saint, my. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm telling you. <laughs> yeah, and she had my little brother too, and I'm the better of the two, so you know. <laughs> well, those that's those your story, and you're sticking to it, right? Uh, yes, sir. Those that don't know Bobby's mother, Margaret. Margaret is a wonderful lady. Is a wonderful lady. And uh, she's she's had some some health issues, uh, of course, uh, over the last several years. But uh, still, a just just the sweetest sweetest woman in the world, I tell you. Yeah, she's she's done very well by me. I've got uh, uh, we probably need to pass along our condolences to Misty James because I figure Bo just jumped off the house. The Braves are up two to nothing in top of the first <laughs> in Chicago, so he's probably. He's probably had some kind of conniption fit or something. He well, asked me the last there. time the Braves, the Braves won okay. two out of three, or I think here in Atlanta, or one out of three. He, said, he asked me, he said, how can a team be so bad and, and play so well? <laughs> well, you the know, sports pages, uh, the sports pages, and I'm not that big of a, you know, a, a sports fan, but anyway, I've – this past week, they've just kind of ignored how the Braves are playing and just talking about everybody upset about either they're upset or they're really happy about the move, you know, one or the other. Yeah. Well, I don't, you know, on our trip, we went through St. Louis and I got to see Bush Stadium. And Bush Stadium is a beautiful stadium sitting right in the middle of downtown St. Louis. I mean, it is surrounded by huge buildings. But it is a gorgeous stadium, and Atlanta, the new stadium is supposed to look similar. And if it does, they're going to pull off a great feat. It's going to be a wonderful environment. But I came by it last Saturday after I'd been to the North Georgia Mountains. I was on the way home, and I made the comment as I come by it. I said, unless something changes, I'll never see the inside of it. Well, I just, I what I understand, yeah, you know, what I understand is traffic's going to really be a nightmare. You know, not only I that, heard. you're going to have to park as far away from it. It's going to kill you to walk to it. So. Uh, yeah. But, you know, hey, more power to them. I hope they have a wonderful right. experience out there. And uh, I still enjoy watching them on TV. So, Sure. We'll see how it goes. Well, my that's on my, my bucket list for this year. I'm going to make uh, – I'm going to make – once the weather's cooler, I'm going to go to at least one, one game at the TED before they're done there. There you go. So uh, – that is that is my we've uh, my daughter and I have already talked about it. We're planning on a September or maybe October. Of course, they're not going to be in a, you know. You shouldn't have a problem getting a seat. No, I don't think that's going to be a problem. But, uh, <laughs> Our parking but, place. Uh, they've not, uh, you know, they're 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 not going to be, you know. In in the title picture, but the, but I've been more impressed with them this year than I was last year, because they've you know even though they've lost the majority of their games, they have have scored more runs than they did last year, or it seems to me they have, and uh, they're 
they're in it all the way, you know, unless they get blown out like they did the other night, you know, nine to one or whatever. But they, you know, most of their games have been close. And here in the last, until they met, uh, got swept by Philadelphia, this this last three game set, uh, they've either won or you know or swept the last three or four series that they've had. So uh, they're already they're playing better under Snitker than they did. Freddie Gonzalez, and that's not to say he was a bad manager, but it's just it just didn't didn't gel. And they've got enough young talent. I think they're going to be they're going to be okay in the next you know few years. I think it's going to be this you know very similar to what they were like in the uh, the 90s. So at least I'm hoping so. We'll see. Well, I hope so. Guys have enjoyed it tonight. Yes, sir. Uh, me too. Good, good show. Always, and uh, we'll uh, we'll get together next week and and see what we can talk about again next week. All righty, okay. sounds like a winner. Good night. Good night, All right. good night everybody. We thank you for listening to this broadcast, a production brought to you by the GWH Radio Network. Stay tuned to GeorgiaWrestlingHistory.com for the latest information on upcoming events and more. As always, we thank you for your continued support.